spaghetti hey all you fraidy cats and kittens i'm whitley i'm brian and this is deathly afraid <laughs> um how's your week going full it's been a good week at work um, at home especially with all this rain it's been kind of nice actually yeah Good, good. It's been good. You know, same old, same old. <laughs> right? Uh, it was. It actually was kind of nice because Creed's practice got canceled like twice. Twice. Plus, they didn't have practice on Monday, so it was like a week of. Well, technically Wednesday, I took him to practice, and then it canceled because lightning. But you know, pretty much got canceled all week though. Yeah, so we had a pretty relaxing week this week. Plus, we didn't have baseball this weekend. We did a yard sale. We are actually recording on Saturday night. It is 7.30, and I'm going to be up all night. So, <laughs> With as much as we didn't have to do this week, we really procrastinated this episode. Right. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Well, I'm first. And have you heard of the Monster Butler? I'm turning it this way so you can't read ahead. I have not heard of the Monster Butler. (laughs) All right. Well, Archibald Thomas Hall was born on June 17th of 1924 in Glasgow, Scotland. So it's almost his birthday. Happy almost birthday. No, I hope your birthday is shit. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. He's dead. Hall began his criminal career as a thief at the age of 15 he devised a petty crime scam which what he would do is um he worked for the red cross and would do like the collection tins right yeah and he had two collection tins the one that got like all the change or whatever he would turn that into the red cross and he would keep the other one that was like all the bills and the Good stuff. Yeah. So that was his first little endeavor into crime. Um, He soon progressed into breaking into houses. In 1941, he received his first of many prison sentences for theft. So he was bisexual and he would... He started infiltrating the gay scene in London after moving there. And with profits of, he moved there with the profits of his little criminal ventures. Then he served his first jail sentence for attempting to sell jewelry in London that he had stolen in Scotland. He received 10 years in 1964, 
shortly after his incarceration, he escaped from Blundelston. Yep. Blundelston Prison in Suffolk. Suffolk? Suffolk. We had this word before in the John Bible John case, and I can't say them. <laughs> <laughs> so he escaped from the prison, only be recaptured in 1966 for escaping, and he received another five years on top of the ten he was already supposed to be serving. So he bought himself five more years. Um, during his sentence, he studied antiques and learned the etiquette of the aristocracy. I can't. That sounds. Aristocracy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That word. Aristocracy. As well as taking elo- elocution lessons to soften his Scottish accent. Upon his release, he began using the name Roy Fontaine. And he named himself after actress John John, after actress Joan Fontaine. In between his periodic spells in prison, he worked as a butler to the rich and famous. By the end of 1973, he was back in prison and stayed there until 1977. When he was released from prison and returned to Scotland, he actually began working as a butler to Margaret Peggy Hudson, the dowager. Did not know what that meant. I think it's a dowager. I think I yeah. dowager. Dowager. Dowager? Is that an actual word? Are you making that up? I don't know. Okay. So what that is, is it's a widow or widower who holds a title or property, a dower, derived from her or his deceased spouse. So it's a fancy widow or widower. They got money, so they got their own name. Right. Can't just be a widow or widower. Um, she lived in Curdleton House, Dumfrieshire. Pego, Pego, Peggy was the widow of Sir Austin Hudson, first baronet, yep, and conservative member of Parliament. Paul had initially planned to steal her valuables, but he actually never did it because. Um, he realized that he actually liked both his job and his employer too much. So he's like, yeah, I guess I'm not going to do that. Um, while he lived there, he was visited by one of his prison acquaintances, David Wright, who started to do various odd jobs around the house. And while Wright was staying with Paul, some of the ladies' butler's silver and a ring vanished. The two had an altercation after Wright stole some of Lady Hudson's jewelry and Wright threatened to tell her about Hall's own criminal past if Hall had reported him to her. This annoyed Hall as he actually liked his job and had decided that he wanted to go straight. (laughs) When he found out that Wright's girlfriend had the ring that he'd stolen, he persuaded her to return it. This time it was Wright who was upset, and when Hall was in bed asleep, he was suddenly awoken by a loud bang. So Archibald, Roy, whoever you want to call him, saw Wright standing next to his bed and pointing a rifle at him. The bullet had hit the headboard above his head, and it was obvious that Wright had taken advantage of the fact that Lady Hudson was away and had consumed a number of bottles of her champagne. Um, Wright jabbed the gun at Hall, catching him in the face with the barrel. After quite some time, Archie eventually managed to calm him down and get 
him to go to bed. So he just shot him or shot at him while he was sleeping. And he's like, dude, just calm down. Just go to bed. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, the very next day, Paul took right on a rabbit hunt. Like, how dumb do you got to be? Like, you just shot at the guy and he's like, let's go rabbit hunting. Right. Let's take these guns and go out. So obviously this was a trick. But after they had fired several rats, fired at several rabbits, and Archie was sure that Wright's gun was empty, he shot him in the head and killed him instantly. Dang. He buried him next to the stream in Curdleton House grounds. Not long after, Hall left the job when Lady Hudson discovered his criminal past anyway. So he relocated to London again and combined more thieving and racketeering with working as a butler to the 82-year-old Walter Scott Elliott and his six-year-old wife, Dorothy. Scott Elliott had been the labor MP for Currington from 1945 to 1950. He was wealthy and from an aristocratic Scottish background. Scott Elliott's were very wealthy with many bank accounts around the world and were the owners of several houses in Britain. So they had lots and lots of money. Paul's plan was to rob the couple of their money and retire. He's like, they have so much money I can retire off this crap. Not long after moving to London, Hall met um, a woman named Mary Coggle. He saw her at a pub and she was chatting to a man named Michael Kiddo. Hall found that they had quite a lot in common as Kiddo also had a history of petty crime. And the three of them chatted and decided to burgle the house of the Scott Elliots. Dorothy had to go into a nursing home for a few days. And on the evening of December 8th, Paul took that uh, opportunity to show Kiddo around the Scott Elliots' house. But unbeknownst to him, Dorothy had actually returned home earlier that day. When he opened the door to the Scott Elliots' bedroom, he expected to see um, the man sleeping but was confronted with Dorothy, who wanted to know what he was doing there with a stranger. And panicking, they both grabbed her, using a pillow, managed to suffocate her. Um, they decided to try and make it look like an accident, so they put her into the bed with her husband. When he woke up, Archie explained to him that his wife had had a nightmare and that she, he should go back to sleep. Like, oh, she just had a nightmare. We're putting her to bed. Um, the next morning, Hall and Kiddo then drugged Walter, which was her husband, and they put Dorothy's body into the trunk and, um, drove them both up to Scotland. They were helped by Mary, who dressed as Dorothy in her $4,000 mink coat. So they drugged the husband and dressed Mary up like Dorothy so that, because the husband, they figure he's so drugged, he's not going to notice, yeah. you know? So, um, they thought, you know, if they kept him sedated long enough, that then Mary would be able to impersonate his wife and he wouldn't notice for a little bit. So, after they buried Dorothy in Bracco, Perthshire, on the afternoon of December 14th near Glen Affric, Paul and Kiddo decided it was time to get rid of Walter. So they attempted to strangle him, but got a little boost of adrenaline or something because he had a lot of extra strength and fought back pretty hard. 
like they were not expecting it. So they used a spade to beat him to death and then used the same spade to bury him in a shallow grave. Um, the next victim was none other than Mary herself. She had taken to wearing Dorothy's expensive clothes and jewelry and Paul just thought she was drawing too much attention to herself and she refused to dispose of the fur coat, which Paul's like, this is incriminating evidence. Like you got to get rid of it. Yeah. And she refused. During the next day, things were tense between Hall and Mary and she wanted to keep the mink coat. But anyway, when they got back to the cottage, the, the two erupted into violence. Paul struck Mary, knocking her to the ground with a poker and put a plastic bag over her head, suffocating her. Later that night, Hall and Kiddo drove to Glasgow Road and dumped her body in a stream under a bridge near Middle, Middleby, Middleby, Bumfordshire, where she was discovered on December 25th of 1977 by a shepherd. Their final victim of the pair was Hall's half-brother, Donald. He was a pedophile recently released from prison who Hall hated, which, knowing he's a pedophile, would also hate him. Right. Like, same. Um, Hall and Kiddo found Donald at the Hall's holiday home in Cumbria and telling him that their next robbery was going to be a tie-up job, they tricked him into letting them practice on him. Once Donald was tied up, Paul used chloroform to incapacitate him before drowning him in a bath. Paul and Kiddo placed Donald's body in the boot of a car, <laughs> which I laughed at, so I left it in there. Um, obviously, that's the trunk of the car, though, for people who don't know that. And again, they drove to Scotland to carry out another burial. However... Paul had made Kiddo replace the car's number plates, which contained three nines. He made him replace the plates. He thought it was an unlucky number. So they stole someone else's plates and replaced them. This meant that the tax disc and the number plate did not match. The wintry weather at the time made the driving pretty hazardous, and so... When they reached North Bern Berwick in East Lothian, they decided to check into a Blenheim. Was Blenheim right? Yeah. Blenheim House Hotel on the north side of the High Street overnight to lessen their chances of being in an accident. However, they were pretty shifty, and the hotel, the hotelier, <laughs> or like the guy at the desk became suspicious of, of them and worried whether they would pay for the room or not. So he called the police as a precaution. But when the police arrived, they realized that the tax, tax disc number plate did not match and took Kiddo and Hall in for questioning. So that was what got them caught. He's like, this unlucky number, man. Get it out of here. So... um. They take them in for questioning when they took a, when they took the car to the police station, which was only 200 yards away from the hotel. They made the discovery of Donald's body in the boot <laughs> or the truck. So on January 16th of 1978, Kiddo was arrested, but Hall escaped. 
through a lavatory window or bathroom window. Um, but he was captured by a police roadblock in nearby Haddington. So he didn't make it far. Actually, I don't know how far Haddington is, but he escaped but didn't escape because they caught him. Yeah. Um, the police made a connection between a Hall's car and the registration number of a vehicle noted by a suspicious antiques dealer in Newcastle Underland. So the two men had offered him silver in China at the price well below its true value. And the police traced the car to the Scott Elliott's address in London and found the apartment robbed of many valuables and spattered with blood. Um, This also linked with the murder of Mary Coggle, whose body was had already been found and who had been previously registered as a housekeeper for the Scott Elliott's. So she worked for them too. The police had evidence that three men, including the drugs, Mr. Scott Elliott. Every time I say that, all I can think of is Scott. Because his name is Scott Elliott. <laughs> um, so anyway, including Mr. Scott Elliott. And a woman had stayed at a Scottish hotel for one night. But then the following night, only two men had stayed. But the two men are obviously Hall and Kiddo. Um, Hall tried and failed to commit suicide while he was in custody before revealing the whereabouts of the three buried victims. In deep snow and bitter cold weather, and with the media watching, police teams dug up the bodies of David Wright, Walter, and Dorothy Scott Elliott. They charged Hall and Kiddo with five murders. Hall was convicted at courts in London and Edinburgh, Edinburgh of four murders. The murder of Dorothy Scott Elliott was ordered was ordered to lie on file and sentenced to life imprisonment. In Scotland, it was recommended that he serve a minimum of 15 years, and in England, the judge handed down a recommendation that he never be released. Kiddo was given life imprisonment for three murders with no recommendation minimum in Scotland and a 15-year minimum in England. Police said that the evidence that Kiddo was in a perverted way fortunate to be able to go on trial as Hall was planning to kill him too. So they just he was just going to kill everyone and take all the money. So, successive home secretaries put Hall on the list of dangerous prisoners who should serve a whole life tariff. I was like, what the heck is that? So, a whole life tariff is a court order whereby a prisoner who is being sentenced to life imprisonment is ordered to serve that sentence without any possibility of parole or conditional release. So, basically, if you get a whole life tariff, you're there forever. You're never getting out. Um, which unlike some criminals on the list, it did not alter Hall's prison status at all. So like at one point this became like, Hey, this isn't okay. We need to, you know, whatever. And so they altered a bunch of people's sentences, but they're like, no, you can stay in there. We're not, right. we're not going to change yours. They did not alter Hall's prison status at all as it reciprocated the tariff set by one of his judges. When politically set tariffs were declared illegal by the law lords, the law lords and the European Court of Human Rights, 
All status as a prisoner, unlikely to be released, never changed, despite his being the oldest prisoner on the published list. In 1995, the Observer newspaper published a letter from Hall in which he requested the right to die. And he had, like I said before, had made numerous attempts at suicide. Um, Hall published an autobiography called A Perfect Gentleman in 1999. Um, he died of a stroke in Kingston Prison, Portsmouth, in 2002 at the age of 78. By this date, he was one of the oldest and more oldest of more than 70,000 prisoners in the British prisons and the oldest to be serving a whole life tariff. In 2005, British actor Malcolm McDowell and Hollywood screenwriter Peter Bellwood announced that they were seeking a director and funding for film based on Hall's life. In 2011, McDowell stated that the film was currently being made and would be named Monster Butler. After some production work had taken place, the film was canceled because of lack of funding, leaving some crew members unpaid. Huh. Yeah. So basically he was called the monster butler because like when he was in prison the first time he like did all this um basically tried to teach himself how to be, you know, proper. He tried to get rid of his accent, learned more about like what rich people like and do or whatever. So yeah. So he could become a butler and rob them, which he did multiple people. So. Just don't get people. Right? And that is all I have to say about that. What are you going to talk about, brother? So this week I am going to talk about the Rendlesham Forest Incidents. Have you ever heard about that? I don't know. What is it about? Aliens. Ooh. I like aliens. Yeah. So, this website that I found is just like a bunch of different people's takes or stories on... Like encounters or whatever? Yeah, okay. On this. So, this Rindlisham Forest is like... Uh, I want to say it was Russia... I have it somewhere on here, but Suffolk. It's like there. It's England, so it's there. Like wait, I had stuff in Suffolk, and you have stuff in Suffolk. It's like their area, fifty-one from here. Oh, that's like okay. A bunch of like alien activity. Cool. So, yeah. Tell me about it. All right. So, the Rendlesham Forest Incident, also known as Britain's Roswell, or sorry, Roswell, New Mexico. Which, isn't that where Area 51 is? Yeah. Okay. So, so you were right. <laughs> is undoubtedly one of the best documented and most significant military encounters with a craft of unknown origin or UFO. It is also a case that involved very credible witnesses, trained United States Air Force observers, and security police. The incident spanned three days in 1980. Rindlisham Forest is a large pine forest east of Ipswich in Suffolk, England. Nearby are the twin NATO airbases, RAF Bentwaters, 
and RAF Woodbridge. At the time, both bases were being leased to the United States Air Force. Several UFO incidents, including multiple witness sightings by military personnel, ground traces, and radioactive anomalies were reported from Rendlesham Forest. According to United States Air Force security patrolmen on duty, the object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, approximately 2 to 3 meters across the base. It illuminated the entire forest with a white light and had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. In November 2002, the British Ministry of Defense released the Rendlesham file, documents related to and confirming the Rendlesham Forest incident. Nick Pope, who was a Ministry of Defense employee from 1985 to 2006 and who wrote a book titled Encounter in Rendlesham Forest, the inside story of the world's best documented UFO incident, described the incident with the following words. This was not some vague lights in the sky sighting. The UFO actually landed. U.S. Air Force Sergeant Jim Penniston's witness account describes a craft made from smooth, opaque, black glass. Hmm. U.S. Air Force Sergeant Jim Penniston, who was in charge of the investigation, was accompanied by U.S. Air Force Security Airman Don Burroughs during the incident. Jim described seeing a craft covered in hieroglyphic-like characters. He said the following, I estimated it to be about three meters tall and about three meters wide at the base. No landing gear was apparent, but it seemed like she was on fixed legs. I moved a little closer. I walked around the craft, and finally, I walked right up to the craft. I noticed the fabric of the shell was more like a smooth, opaque, black glass. U.S. Air Force Security Airman John Burroughs described agitated animals and red and blue lights near a farmhouse. One of the men asked to investigate the strange blue, red, orange, and white lights coming from the forest was John Burroughs. In a witness statement published in 1981, he said, the woods lit up, and you could hear the farm animals making a lot of noises. You could see the lights down by a farmer's house on the forest's edge. We climbed over the fence and started walking toward the red and blue lights, and they just disappeared. Indentations on the ground and high radiation levels were recorded the next day. That's weird, huh? Right? Like, I don't know. Like, a lot of that, too, like, I remember from... Skinwalker, Skinwalker Ranch. Ranch, like certain spots, like had like high radiation levels, which I don't, I don't know why. It's just weird to me. Yeah, like it doesn't affect them the way it affects human right. type thing. Yeah. So the morning after the incident witnessed by Burroughs and Penniston, indentations on the forest floor were spotted, as well as damage to the trees in the area where the lights had been seen. Radiation levels recorded at the site of the indentations were also reported to be unusually high. Colonel Halt recorded a running commentary during the second UFO sighting at Renlisham Forest. 
On December 27, 1980, two nights after the first reported incident, United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt was ready. Known as a pragmatic character, Halt set out to disprove the wild theories doing the rounds at the RAF bases. When more lights were spotted, he took his tape recorder and joined the military patrol group. The resulting audio tape has been declassified since the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense. It is now public domain and can be listened to here. Now, rather than a pulsating or glow with a red flash, 
just crossed the, the click. And uh, we're getting what kind of readings now? Getting th three good clicks on the meter, and we're seeing strange lights in the sky. Not too far further, we're at the far side of the farmer's, the second farmer's field, and made sighting again about 110 degrees. This looks like it's clear out to the coast. It's right on the horizon. Moves about a bit and flashes from time to time. Still steady error encounter. Also, after negative readings in the center of the field, we're picking up the slight readings, uh, four or five clicks now on the meter. 305, we see strange uh, strobe-like flashes to the uh, rather sporadic, but there's definitely something there, some kind of phenomenal. 305, at about uh, 10 degrees horizon uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects, uh, half-moon shape, dancing about with colored lights on them. But, uh, Gets to be about five to ten miles out, maybe less. The half moons have now turned into full circles. As I know there was a eclipse or something there for a minute or two. Three three fifteen. Now we've got an object about ten degrees directly south, ten degrees off the horizon. And the ones in the north are moving. What's moving away from us? Moving out fast. Yeah, we're both heading north. Oh, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. 330, Zero 3.30, and the objects are still in the sky, although the one to the south looks like it's losing a little bit of altitude. We're turning around heading back toward the, the base. The object, is, the object to the south is still beaming down lights to the ground. One object still hovering over Woodbridge Base at about 5 to 10 degrees off the horizon, still moving erratic and similar lights and beaming down this area. That would be freaking crazy. Right? I couldn't imagine like being out there and just seeing all those like UFOs and stuff. They're like, oh. A laser beam, or not a laser beam. What, what do you call it? Just a beam? A beam. Beam of light? Yeah. Beam me up, Scotty. Pick me up and shook me like a doll. <laughs> that would be insane to actually see something like that. Yeah. I would poop my pants. Me too, probably. <laughs> so, Burroughs and Penniston, the first two witnesses, suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. In the encounter in the Red Lisham Forest book, Penniston wrote, I left the forest a different man. I was in awe of the technology, and yes, and knowing that it was not an aircraft which could have been manufactured in the 1980s or even now. Both Penniston and Burroughs have since suffered from PTSD, the Telegraph reported in 2015. In recent years, Penniston has said that the craft transmitted binary code into his brain. <laughs> Numerous eyewitness statements emerged following the incident. Burroughs, Penniston, and Colonel Halt have been the most vocal in saying they believe what they saw was extraterrestrial in origin, but they are not the only eyewitnesses. Sergeant Adrian Bastinza, a security police commander who investigated the incident at the time, said, When I arrived at the scene, it was going in and out through the trees, and at one stage it was, it was hovering. In 1983, a UK newspaper ran a front-page story which stated, UFO lands in Suffolk 
and that's official. <laughs> in the following years, as accounts about the Rendlesham Forest incident were released, the press started to respond to the growing public interest around the events. News of the World front page story headline UFO lands in Suffolk, and that's official. The News of the World story was based on a memo. The HALT Memorandum from RAF Woodbridge Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles HALT to the Ministry of Defense. It was released by the U.S. government and described an encounter with an apparent UFO or craft of unknown origin in the forest. Statements from radar operators have recently corroborated Colonel HALT's claims. As recently as 2015, the then 75-year-old Colonel Hall announced that he had obtained written statements from ra radar operators at RAF Bentwaters in nearby Watsham Airfield that an unknown object was, in fact, tracked at the time of the incident. As per the BBC, Halt claimed they had not wanted to come forward until after they had retired from their military roles. I have confirmation that Bentwater radar operators saw the object go across their 60-mile scope in two or three seconds. Holy crap. Thousands of, a, of miles an hour. He came back across their scope again, stopped near the water tower. They watched it and observed it go into the forest where we were, said Colonel Halt. There have been suggestions of a government cover-up, Colonel Halt, who recorded the audio tape commentary during the second incident, has gone on record saying that he believes what he saw was of extraterrestrial origin and that the incident was covered up by the UK and US governments. The Ministry of Defense, meanwhile, is adamant that the Rendlesham Forest incident was of no threat to national security and therefore hadn't merited a full investigation. Hmm. Today, there is a UFO trail set out of forest for trackers. In 2005, due to the public interest in the UFO incident, the Forestry Commission used lottery proceeds to create a trail in Rindlisham Forest. They called it the UFO Trail. Huh. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I would be... Excited and terrified at the same time. Yeah. Look, cause it's like you want to see it because you want to know it exists. But at the same time, you're like, please don't probe me. It's like seeing Bigfoot. Like, it'd be cool to see it, but if it, you actually saw one, you'd probably like crap yourself and be like, oh. Right? I would be terrified. Yeah, I... Just seeing it was funny because I was talking to you about it during that tape of Colonel Halt about the recent, he was in Vegas, somebody called 911 because they said a UFO landed in their backyard and there were two, like, eight to nine foot tall beings. Oh my so, like, gosh. They were, like, feared for their life and so they called it. In. <laughs> what are the police going to do? Yeah, right? Um... Did they find drugs in the house? I need to read more on it because when you just seen the thing popped up on my phone about that incident, so I wanted to read more and kind of see 
what went on with that once they called it in. Right. I mean, if they weren't on drugs and it actually happened, that would be crazy. Right. And I would also be scared for my life. But I don't know what the police are going to do for you. The only thing I could think of thinking about that is in the movie Signs when they're like, at the kid's birthday party, and like the camera pans out, and you just see the alien like slowly walk by. <laughs> They're all having fun and stuff. I don't think I've seen that movie. What is it? Seen Signs? I don't think so. Really? I don't know. Nice. Yeah. I I actually hadn't heard about that one. So good story, sir. Yeah. It's a good alien story. Yeah. Aliens. What if you got abducted? What would you do? I have no idea. Would you tell people about it? Because everyone, if you know, you get abducted, they bring you back, and then you tell someone, everyone's like, he's a nut job. I don't know that I would tell anybody. Right? Because everybody, yeah, like you said, like everybody's like, whatever. Right? Like you're crazy. There is a author. Whitley, dead serious, Whitley, I want to say Strieber, Strieber, something like that. Yeah. It says that he was abducted by aliens and, like, writes a story about it. I think, I actually have the book. I haven't read it yet, but Maddie gave it to me one year for, like, my birthday or Christmas or something. Oh, look, here's that Vegas family report seeing aliens. Something strange caught on body cam. <laughs> oh, they caught? They actually caught a video of it? Uh, let's see what this video is. It's real blurry. Uh, super blurry. TMZ. Of course it's not real. There's 911 audio. Green beans? Uh, my neighbor, the cop is super enthusiastic. <laughs> Dang, you can't get it to stop. That's so funny. The one cop is like, Yeah, you've seen some eight tall, eight tall, eight foot tall green beans. And it sounded like he said green beans. It did sound like he said green beans. We got some super tall green beans back there. Miracle grow. It is a miracle. <laughs> I know that one cop is like, Nope, I'm out. And the other one's like, I don't want to encounter aliens. Where are they at? <laughs> that would be it. Insane. Like I would, 
I feel like both of those cops at the same time. Like, yeah, I want to encounter aliens. Honestly, I do think there are other beings out there that are way more advanced than we are. Well, there's got to be other life, obviously. The universe is infinite. There's no way there's not another intelligent... Like, you know what I mean? There's other beings out there. I don't think they're as everybody describes them. Right? It sounds silly. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say... I think it would be cool to be like able to encounter aliens or whatever if they're super nice. Yeah. Obviously. But I also want me to take, I want them to take me to their planet because I want to see this shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why do you just come here, focus a little bit, and then leave? Like, take me with you. I want to see it. I mean, bring me back though. Yeah. Unless your planet's super cool, then maybe leave me there. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Whitley's gone, guys. Sorry. Bye. Can we go back and get my family at least? (laughs) That's my thought on aliens. Yeah. I I don't know. Like I said, it would be cool. Kind of be scary at the same time, but... You can almost picture them like... As human-like, but they're just more advanced than everything, I guess. I don't... Yeah. I'm not quite sure. I don't either. But if any of our listeners have their own thoughts on it, please feel free to email us at deathlyafraidpod at gmail.com or we could even do a poll on our episode this week. Yeah. Or we can, um, you guys can even write in to our Facebook page or Facebook group, Deathly Afraid Podcast, or our Instagram, at Deathly Afraid Podcast. Mm-hmm. You can demon us. You can demon us. DM us. <laughs> they picked me up with their laser beams. Shook me like a dog. <laughs> All right, guys, that's our episode. Thanks for coming back. Bring some friends next time, guys. Yeah, lots of friends. That's Minnie letting you guys know. Bring some friends. Yeah. I don't know if you could hear her barking, but she was barking. (laughs) That's what she was saying, though. She said, bring your friends. (laughs) We're having a party. All right. See you next week. See ya. Bye.